This is Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. We will be talking today about the IPM Immersion Project, bringing people from the USA to engage with people who participate in human rights and projects across the globe. Our guests are Joseph Stone, the Executive Director of IPM, who lives in Mount Desert Island and Adela Zayas Hernandez, the Regional Director for Latin America and the Caribbean, and the International Director of Programs and Partnerships, who lives in El Salvador. So, welcome to both of you. Thank you, Steve. Um, Thank you so much, Steve. So, uh, I think, Joe, I'd like to start with you to um, talk uh, a little bit about the history, but, what, what, what is the immersion program? So IPM was founded in 1974 as a multi-faith organization that works across the boundaries of faith, culture, and economic circumstance with women, children, and youth to nurture projects that promote justice, peace, and hope. And the Immersion Experience Program started in 2002-2003 as an opportunity for primarily North American and other European or Northern donors and friends to be with and learn from our partners around the world. So it's a short-term opportunity of typically seven to 12 days, occasionally longer, uh, where participants from academic institutions, faith communities, corporations, groups of donors and friends have an opportunity to travel with, uh, live alongside, accompany, be with and learn from our project partners in approximately 12 countries around the world. Uh, The program is based out of our three regional offices, the Latin America and Caribbean office, which is located in San Salvador, El Salvador. And I know WERU has a longstanding relationship with that country and the radio station there. And Adela Zayas is our regional director of that office. And then we have an office in Nairobi, Kenya, and an office in Ahmedabad, India, which is in the state of Gujarat, and Muheshu Madaya has been interviewed before, I think, on WERU, talking about his important work in India. So again, Steve, it's, the whole idea is that when North Americans humbly enter into partnership with our brothers and sisters around the world, we gain and learn more than we can ever hope to give from our North American abundance. So it's not an opportunity to go and work. It's well, within quotes, or to fix, again, within quotes, uh, the situation, but really to get to know the partners that we work with, to understand that their hopes and dreams and aspirations for themselves and their children and their communities are much the same as ours. And then after the experience, hopefully to be transformed and to come back to the U.S. or perhaps a European country or Canada um, and to advocate and work to support the important work that those women-led community-based organizations are doing um, in the 20-some countries we work around the world. And um, so overall, how many uh, people from North America have participated? Uh, well, it's, it's kind of interesting because the last immersions we had with the COVID pandemic were in Kenya uh, with a group from Yale University in January and then in Columbia with a group from Holy Cross College in Massachusetts 
and then, excuse me, also with Stonehill College here among the Wabanaki in February. I guess that was the last one. But we've run at this point over 200, and these are rough numbers, over 250 different emergent experiences and have had well over 26, 2,700 participants uh, by this time. Typically 10 to 15 people go on an immersion. The numbers can be a little smaller and sometimes are as large as 25, but literally thousands of individuals have had the opportunity to have this experience with IPM. And and the the people who come from North America, um, is there a cost um, associated with coming to this? Yes, the cost of the immersion, again, if we're, you know, if we're talking in a post-COVID, uh, you know, world or pre-COVID world, the cost is typically between two and $5,000. And that includes, it's basically all expenses paid. A significant portion of that is a donation back to the communities with whom folks will be sojourning while they're abroad. Also pays for translation services, in-country travel, travel to and from the country, room and board, um, et cetera. And typically, um, unless someone is a board member, in which case the the tax deduction is a bit higher, for the average uh, North American who itemizes in that way, normally 20 to 25% of the cost of the trip um, is deductible. I I would tell you, Steve, um, that over the past two months, we've developed what we're calling a virtual immersion experience program. So on July 15th, we're going to be kicking off programs where we'll provide opportunities uh, through our colleague, Victoria Jimenez, who's also in the El Salvador office, but is our emergent experience coordinator for people to go basically to the same countries virtually and have a similar experience hour by hour through social media, or even to look at a theme like say gender equity or racial justice from the perspective of six or seven different countries. Well, I, I hope we'll be able to talk about that yeah. later, but also hope that uh, that, that will be short-lived and you'll be back <laughs> yeah. to, to, uh, to going in. And um, uh, one more question, Joe, before I um, ask uh, Adela um, a question, which is um, what are the... Um, uh, you have a, a number of of countries. Um, what are the what are the countries that um, have the most number of of immersion programs? So we about our our countries or our priority countries are basically determined by two factors: the places where we have regional offices and the largest number of project partners, which are the community based partner organizations with whom we've been working for a couple of years or even a decade. And the immersion experience tends to reflect that prioritization. So I would say the largest number of immersions in a typical year, if we can sort of pretend for a moment that the situation in Nicaragua is different politically than it is right now, or that you know travel was open anywhere, would probably be El Salvador, Nicaragua, Kenya, India, and Colombia in that order. But we also do immersions to the Dominican Republic, Brazil, Uganda, Italy, and Nepal, and among the Wabanaki here in Maine and the Shoshone people in Wyoming. Thank you. Um, that's a, uh, 
that's a lot of programs. Um, I, I, Adela, um, I think it would be really helpful to um, describe a um, a pre-COVID-19 um, immersion program. Um, you know, something that would be somewhat typical. How many um, how many days? What did what did people actually do? Um, who who were they meeting with? Yes, of course. Uh, well, so um, in our immersion experiences, uh, we try to build relationships. That's the, the most important uh, aspect of the immersion experience program. Therefore, uh, to build those relationships, it is important uh, for us um, as IPM, as the organization, for the people that are visiting our country to visit uh, the project partners that we work with, which are uh, independent organizations, uh, and each organization has uh, each uh, um, their own uh, coordinator. Um, so so I, let, let me just stop for a second to make sure that I yes. understand that um, uh, <laughs> that your your organization is um, when you are putting together an immersion. It's always a connection between. North Americans and a uh, an organization or an NGO in the country. It, it is correct, but um, we uh, we have established more stronger uh, relationship with uh, our project partners. We can visit other organizations. which are, we can visit, for example, uh, community partners uh, or even colleges, but. Uh, the, the, I think the most important visits uh, during this immersion experience are the ones that we do to our project partners, which are some of them nonprofit organizations or their small projects or their cooperatives. So um, that's helpful. Could you yes. could you give in you know in a in a few minutes just an example of what what happened on day one? What happened? Um, and let me just start. How long? Are most of these? How long are people in in El Salvador when they are? Okay, in? so uh, usually an immersion experience uh, lasts from seven to ten days, um, and in these days, as I was mentioning, we visit different uh, project partners, uh, but also tourist um, um, uh, spots uh, and cultural um, uh, cultural uh, places. You know, the, I think the main idea of the or the main objective of the Immersion Experience Program is to uh, expose uh, the visitors from the United States to our culture, to our country. And we do this by visiting different places, different uh, locations. So, for example, in day one, we want to provide here in El Salvador, taking that as an example, my, uh, my country, um, we try to provide the most information uh, for the people uh, of the United States uh, about the Civil War, for example, uh, which is uh, part of our history. Um, also going with the history, we try to talk a lot about one of our most important marchers, which is Oscar Arnulfo Romero, um, the marchers, the Jesuit marchers of the UCA as well, um, and the four church women marchers as well. So we tried the first days to provide a context, a history context, um, 
for the people visiting us. So later when they meet our project partners, they have like some context of what they went through uh, in the history, but also um, what are the, the, the things in the past that are still affecting our reality. So uh, the first days we try to meet some people that can talk about to uh, that, that can talk about the history, uh, the marchers uh, of El Salvador. We visit, for example, a Jesuit uh, university that is called UCA, uh, which is um, uh, my alma mater. Uh, I graduated from that uh, from that university. We visit um, the the UCA uh, in order to do two important visits. Uh, we meet with Suyapa Perez. Uh, she is uh, a very uh, important theologian here in El Salvador. Uh, so we meet with her in order to learn more about um, different topics. Um, um, uh, it could be about migration, for example. It could be about the marchers. It could be about uh, theology uh, in the context of El Salvador. It could be about the history of El Salvador, etc. And then we visit uh, also... Uh, the, the Martyrs Center, uh, which is an overlook of the history of El Salvador. Uh, we go uh, year by year of the Civil War, uh, taking also into account what happened at the university, uh, the assassination of the martyrs. Um, and then we, we, um, we end this, uh, this little tour, you know, this little, um, uh, yeah, this little tool in a chapel in order to reflect on what we have learned. Uh, we can, ex uh, for example, also be visit um, Monseñor Romero's crypt, uh, which is a sacred place. Um, I am sure not only for, for the people in the U.S., but also for us, uh, definitely. Uh, so we learn over there about um, what happened in the cathedral uh, uh, during different times um, in the in the civil war, uh, but also what happened in there uh, with when the funeral of Monsignor Romero took place. Um, we also visit, uh, and, and, and we're talking about a a very famous um, Catholic uh, priest who was um, murdered. Definitely, okay. definitely, yes, and and um, we also visit, yeah. So can, can we just um, give me um, an example of, um, of the interaction that people would have with one of your, uh, one of your uh, partners, Project your projects? Yeah. Sure, of course. Um, well, so after we do like this historical, cultural, and even tourist uh, visits, we go to our project partners. Um, for us, it's very important to keep a balance, we, you know, because um, in order to take uh, all the information that it's provided, uh, we need, uh, you, you know, like the participants to uh, be with uh, a lot of energy. And so a typical visit to our project partners, uh, it, I, I think it's very powerful because we get to see what the projects are doing daily, you know, day by so day. Can, so can we, you give me a specific just for a minute of a specific um, project? Of course. Okay. So, uh, for example, if we go to um, Patronato Lidia Cogliola, uh, to El Saite community in Zaragoza, uh, we go there, uh, we, the, the children uh, have an opening at, act uh, to welcome us. 
Uh, then they talk a little bit about the different projects, the different programs that the Patronato Livia Cuyola, which is a kindergarten uh, for children, uh, does uh, in the community. Uh, and then uh, we take maybe like a more relaxed time to communicate with one another, you know, to the project um, partners, uh, the project uh, participants are there, but also the immersion experience participants. So a communication, uh, a dialogue between them happen. And, and I'm, I'm struck with how, how many things people do. I mean, Joe turning to you, it's just, you, you, you've described this, I think to me about a day and a half of a seven to 10 day experience. Um, it, it, Joe, it just sounds like it must be extraordinarily intense. It's intense. Um, as, uh, as Adela was saying, we, um, you know, we realize that people's energy ebbs and flows and that people need different sorts of interactions and opportunity for downtime and reflection or physical exercise. So the days are, the days are sort of broken up, you know, well from like a, you know, early morning opportunity if people want to go for a run or go for a walk a breakfast, which is kind of a sort of a moment for centering and thinking about the day, hearing about the day. Then usually, as Adela said, a couple hours of more social, cultural, historical experience. And then, which can be quite emotional, you know, given the history of the U.S. and El Salvador or in Kenya with colonialism or in India with, you know, the current government. Um, and then when we're with our partners, um, one of the things that I think is really unique about IPM is that these are folks and communities groups of women in particular that we have long-standing relationships with built on the principles of solidarity, accompaniment, and trust. And so we're really able to enter into, and the participants are able to sort of immediately have a level of intimate conversation with folks and be exposed um, to the, and learn about their realities in a way you couldn't, say, on a typical, you know, tourist trip, or if you were going, you know, with sort of a mission group, if you will, to fix it, uh, where you're really not there to learn anything, you're going with all the answers. So it's, it can be intense, Steve, but it's, um, you know, there's always opportunity for reflection at the beginning and the end of each day as a group. Um, often there are really powerful opportunities for sharing and reflection throughout the day, downtime, for example, like Adela said, with the faculty at Lydia Cocholo over you know, uh, coffee, <laughs> really good Salvadoran coffee with uh, cinnamon and black pepper, which is my favorite. The mix. best one here. <laughs> best coffee I've ever had. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's moving, but, but fun and really deeply, um, people feel a deep sense of connection that we believe as an organization is what the world needs now more than ever. This, this sense of solidarity and sisterhood and brotherhood and not um, you know, that we're all, you know, that they're the other, or there are people that we want to put a wall up to keep out of our own well, nation. Thank you. Um, uh, I need to bring in uh, two listeners that just joined us to know what we're doing. Um, you are listening to WERU's show, Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. We are talking today about the IPM Immersion Project, bringing people from North America to engage with people who participate in human rights projects across the globe. 
Our guests are Joe Sistone, the executive director of IPM, who lives in Mount Desert Island, and Adela Zayas Hernandez, the regional director for Latin America and the Caribbean, and the international director of programs and partners. And she lives in El Salvador. So I, I want to um, uh, probably go back in time uh, and uh, ask you both the same question. And Joe, I'll start with you. Um, uh, you you've spent uh, a large portion of your life focusing on social justice and human rights issues. What brought, what brought you to that work? Well, um, you know, I, I get asked that question often, Steve, and, um, you know, I often tell people, though my mother can't really be clear, completely clear with me, I think my earliest childhood memory, um, I was born in uh, the 60s, was in 19... 68 at the murder of either Martin Luther King or Bobby Kennedy. We can't really ever recall exactly who, but I remember the wailing or the screaming and, and really never hearing my mother that hysterical. And, and then talking to her and my dad throughout, you know, my young childhood about, you know, who King was and what um, MLK had met and what Bobby Kennedy had met to them um, as Catholics coming of age during that time. Um, and then, you know, kind of ironically, given the times in which we live, um, in my ca at my Catholic elementary school, I had a good friend, a young man who became a good friend, but was the first African American kid to integrate uh, my elementary school. And I remember uh, the first day he was at the school. It's kind of an embarrassing story to tell, but he was um, basically being bullied or beat up on the playground by some of the rougher kids and. You know, I grew up in a kind of blue-collar at best immigrant community, and I remember not intervening and then going home that night and, um, you know, basically my parents reading the riot act to me that I, I should have done something to stop it. And so his name was Craig. I'll, I'll keep his last name out of it, but we became really good friends, and my younger sister did. And, um, you know, I think that's what so many people in our country today need, at, you know, maybe 10, 9, 10 years old. Um, you know, my best friend happened to be an African-American kid, and I was probably his first white friend as well. So that was a real transformative experience for us. And we stayed friends um, for quite some time, our families, before they moved away to Detroit. Around a similar time, a year or two later, my parents welcomed Vietnamese uh, refugees, uh, five young men who had been brought to the United States through our local parish. And um, I grew up Catholic. And I know being with those guys and particularly being with them during the holidays and seeing the ways they interacted with my younger sisters and myself um, and, uh, you know, how much they missed their own kids was really quite moving for me. And then I think probably the biggest watershed, and I've probably shared this with you personally, uh, was in 1980, the murder of the four churchwomen that Adela referenced earlier. Um, I was in just new, I think, first year of high school. And we were called into an assembly. It was at an all-boys prep school, and there was a girls' Catholic school kind of on the same campus. And we were told that these two churchmen from Cleveland, along with two other sisters, Mary Knoll sisters, were missing. And I went home that night. My mom, who taught, you know, had a huge influence on me, taught with the Earthland sisters, was on the phone, you know, on a landline, talking to her friends because they were all hysterical. 
because nobody knew where Dorothy and um, Jean had gone. And then the next day, their bodies were found. We were called back into the chapel on campus to, you know, to pray for them. And um, I remember the then Reagan administration sort of calling Jean Kirkpatrick and Alexander Haig in particular, referred to them as gun-toting sisters, literally gun-toting sisters and communists, because uh, they had been coming back from Nicaragua. And as a um, 15-year-old boy, that was the first time that I realized my faith and my government were not in alignment. <laughs> Somebody had to be lying. And was it, was it my mom <laughs> and the Ursuline sisters I knew, who, which I had a hard time believing they would ever lie to me, um, or the president and representatives of his government. So as I went on in school and then went to a Jesuit undergraduate college, Holy Cross, Massachusetts, and learned more about what the U.S. was doing in Latin America at the time, and particularly the apartheid movement. I had some friends in South Africa, which is a long story. Um, I mean, you know how life happens. You know, you're 15 one moment, and now I'm 55. Um, and in many ways, the, you know, the memory of being called into that chapel to hear that story and, and the disconnect as a kid of just realizing that my government was lying to me and was directly responsible for the murder of those church women, um, you know, has informed probably everything I've done since, even though that was four decades ago. <laughs> um, Joe, thank you. And I'm, I'm sort of sitting here with feeling prickles over my skin because um, uh, well, I'm not going to tell the story, but it was, um, but it was, a, it was a very similar um, uh, event very during the civil rights movement. Yeah. Watch, watching it unfold on uh, the CBS Evening News. Um, but we all have different ways where we come and reasons where we came to the kind of work that that you do and both of you. And sometimes it's intertwined with the kind of work you do, um, perhaps psychology for you or for me being a lawyer. So uh, Adela, what, what brought you to this work? Well, so I, I think uh, my parents uh, did a great job by cultivating uh, solidarity, maybe not by saying it, but, all by, um, but by always showing it, you know. Uh, I was raised um, uh, in an uh, uh, evangelical family, uh, and I have, I, 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 um, sometimes I didn't felt uh, as me, as myself, uh, as free to be myself in the church, but my dad and my mom always uh, made me feel that freedom and they always respect me. Uh, and I think they also cultivated uh, a, a, another big value, uh, which is um, creating healthy relationships, you know. Uh, so when, they, when, when I was growing up, I always knew that I wanted it to work with people. Um, and then I, I decided to study psychology. Uh, by, by when my time came and to get into the college, uh, to the Jesuit University, to UCA, um, which in the 80s uh, had a very important role in the Civil War with the, uh, with the student movement uh, as well. Um, for me, I, 
I felt trans personally transformed uh, by, th by that experience. So I decided to study psychology, uh, thinking that I was going to help people, you know, uh, of course, that I was going to work with people as well. Um, but uh, I, I, I say, um, and I really believe it, uh, that I opened my mind and my heart when I got to the university because I got to see the reality of my country, which studying in an evangelical school in Torch uh, here in, in El Salvador, it wasn't an important matter. You know, we didn't discuss the civil war. They didn't taught me everything that the government did to the people uh, during the civil war. I didn't really get to hear any analysis. Uh, I guess my mom and my dad also to protect me, you know, mentally uh, and emotionally. They didn't really also wanted it to share their stories, their personal stories, but the, this, the history of the country as well. But when I got to the university, I learned about the marchers. I learned about the Jesuit marchers. I learned, I learned about Monsignor Romero, about the four church women. Uh, and I understood that I couldn't help people, that it was uh, very egocentric from me to say that I was going to help people because I realized that I didn't have all the answers. I still don't have all the answers, you know. Um, and I think the first step uh, for me was to learn from, our, from my reality, not only from the positive aspect, all the, the good things that were that the country was making, but also the bad aspects, uh, the conflicts, uh, the murders, the human rights violations. And I think that was uh, this, this ugly and dark side uh, was the, the trigger for me that, uh, that allowed me to understand that I wanted it to follow the social justice path, you know? Well, mm -hmm. thank you. And, and my, my guess is both of you have come been hard work and it will continue to be. Um, I'm interested in um, from each of you to, to tell just about one individual from North America who was changed in a way um, through the immersion program um, where, where, wherever that may be. Just a an example that can give give us a sense of of what's the power of this program. Um, either one of you want to jump in? Sure, I can go. Uh, well, so I remember one of my first immersion experiences uh, was in Nicaragua, actually. It wasn't in my country, but it was in Nicaragua. Uh, and I met a student there. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes we need... We try to protect the identity of our participants, but I think it's really empower. Uh, it is empower um, to say sometimes the name of these of these people because it's a way of recognizing their transformation and recognizing them as human beings. You know that has been transformed, and so uh, her name is Josie. Uh, she was um, a student from uh, Holy Cross. She has graduated now. Uh, and I really think uh, that that is the perfect example of the kind of relationships that IPM wants to build with our project partners, you know, because Josie was great in the country during the immersion experience program. She was listening. She was very attentive. She, she uh, had like a very 
uh, opened um, uh, open attitude toward toward the po uh, the project partners, but really any kind of experience inside the country. But then when the immersion experience was over, she kept in contact uh, with the staff, uh, with me, uh, with uh, one of my colleagues as well, but also with the project partners. And when the um, social situation, uh, uh, political and social situation changed for Nicaragua, uh, as a staff, we decided to visit uh, the country. Uh, and some of us published uh, in different social media that the country was needing a lot, a lot of help. And Josie was the one of the first uh, and one of the unique people that jumped in and said, I want to help. How can I help? Um, and one of the things she did to support the, the project partners in Nicaragua during these hard times was to uh, do some uh some sales in the con uh, in the university. So she got in contact with some of the people at Holy Cross, uh, and they, as a university, bought some of the handcrafts that the women in Nicaragua made to support them. Uh, and not only uh, they received that money from that selling, but also, uh, yeah. Did you know, just finish up. Uh, but, but, but also... Um, what she what she sell in the university also return to the community. Well, that's that's a powerful, powerful story, uh, Joe. Uh, you is have you probably have lots of people you're thinking of. <laughs> I mean, typically, you know, Steve. For me, the most moving experiences are either with um, young students, and by young, I mean typically high school students who. Uh, go on an IPM immersion experience through a scholarship opportunity, which we're able to do with um, a number of public schools and more at-risk student populations, and then also for the students that I teach at the graduate school level. But to go with um, Adela's example, or to stick with Nicaragua, years ago, a young woman named Molly uh, went on an immersion with us to uh, El Salvador as a sophomore or junior in high school, and she wrote such a compelling uh, reflection on that experience that we invited her to come back and speak at our luncheon, sort of give a personal testimony. And there wasn't a dry eye within the house. And then uh, she went off to college at Xavier University in Cincinnati. And while she was there, she spent a semester abroad or year abroad in Nicaragua um, and then came back uh, after that, came to work as a fellow. We have a fellows program, sort of post-grad volunteer opportunity with IPM. She spent uh, a couple years as a fellow, became a member of the staff, introduced um, us to one of uh, Adele and my colleagues, a guy named Martin, uh, who works in Managua, Nicaragua now. And his, he's driven for almost all of our delegations there ever since. And I've gotten uh, quite close to him and his, his family, particularly in this difficult time that Nicaragua's in right now. Um, Molly worked with us for a number of years, then went back and got a master's in social work and has been working with resettling uh, refugees in the Cleveland area, as difficult as that might be, um, for the last two, almost three years now since she finished her social work degree. So she's a really good example of the way a young woman can sort of come into what we call the IPM family, you know, even as a young teenager and then through school and graduate school and work and family connections, um, just really become a part of the family. And I'm sure she'll stay connected with IPM, I hope, um, as long as uh, 
she lives as long as I'm in, in this role for sure. And uh, her and her family continues to support the organization. She continues to be a role model um, for many of our younger um, staff and our partners because of her fluency in Spanish and the time, uh, subsequent time she spent living in Nicaragua. So she's just one great example. So I, I, I want to move on to the other side of the equation. And uh, perhaps one of you can talk about, um, or maybe I'll put this to you, Joe, just as from all the different places that you work. What's, what's the benefit for the, uh, the people who are in the country and are kind of spending time with North Americans? Well, I mean, it, that's probably a better question for Adela to answer. But from my, from my experience, um, you know, I'll, I'll speak about a, a dear friend and a former colleague, Julieta Bora in El Salvador. Um, you know, the United States has an outsized, an outsized role internationally and has for multiple generations now. And for many years and in many different parts of the world, we've had a, a positive influence in some ways, but quite a negative influence, um, particularly in relation to the civil war in El Salvador. And so part of the benefit, I think, though it's not for me to say what the benefit is for someone else, but I believe from you know sharing with Julieta and others, that part of the benefit is the understanding that um, they haven't been forgotten, that the U.S. you know spent all the money on arms and uh, a conflict that led to the death of over seventy-five thousand civilians, and then immediately at the end of the Cold War, sort of said, "Okay, peace has come to El Salvador. We're out." Um, and if it wasn't for IPM and organizations like ours, because we're certainly not the only one. Um, continuing to try to walk in solidarity and accompany the Salvadoran people, um, the opportunities to promote change within the country, I think, would be much less. Um, I wouldn't say that they necessarily learned from us. That would be presumptuous. I think that I still learn more from Julieta, for example, or from Adela, who's on the call, than maybe I can ever teach You know, from my background. Um, but I, this sense, I think, of um, understanding that we're in this struggle together um, and that this work is hard and that it's the work of a lifetime. It's frankly the work of lifetimes. But to have colleagues and friends and companions uh, that you can be on that walk with um, and, and go through the struggle together to laugh about it, to cry about it, to have a beer about it, whatever it might be. Um, is how, you know, it's, it's how we get through. It's how we deal with the trauma. Um, it's how we deal with the, uh, the sadness. Um, and it's how we deal with the real, I think, righteous indignation and anger that many of us are feeling right now about what's happening in our own country and what continues to happen internationally. And if we try to do it on our own, um, you know, we're just, I don't, I don't think that's a healthy way to do it. And I think people burn out, but when we can work together, join together, put our hands together, um, it, the, the possibility for transformation is much greater. Thank you. Um, Adela, you must have lots of examples. Can you think of one of 
um, how it changed or benefited or supported somebody from your region? Sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, we have a cooperative here in El Salvador, uh, which is a long-lasting project partner. Uh, their name is Acomujersa. Uh, they are a cooperative of women. Um, and they have recently added men also to the organization. Um, so uh, they have made great connections with different uh, institutions, with different people that visited them through the years. Uh, and I think one of the uh, one of the more the, the important um, connections uh, that they made uh, it's with um, it's when they uh, are allowed to send some of the products, uh, some of their products, some of their handcrafts to the United States, and then get income uh, from those sales. So that is a great benefit. But they have um, also um, been in constant communication with different people uh, through the United States, you know. And I, I also think that's one of the most valuable things because this type of relationships, this type of support uh, that provides income wouldn't happen if they first wouldn't uh, have an emotional connection, you know. Thank you. Um, God, Joe, you mentioned before the, the trauma that can come with this work. Um, for each of you, what, what's the most difficult part of your work? Um, <laughs> you want me to go? <laughs> uh, either, either one. Um, I think, um, you know, it, I suppose the easiest thing to, you know, to refer to, or the most difficult, maybe the most obvious, is the times when you're literally um, there at a moment when someone is dying or or murdered. Um, and I've seen, as you know, you know, Steve, way more in that in my lifetime than probably one would want to. Um, and that's that's certainly traumatic in its own way. Uh, I think as I get older, um, and one of the beauties of having you know, younger colleagues like Adela, so intimately involved with IPM, is um, while there's a sense that, as I said earlier, the change is hard, and that sometimes it's, it feels like one step forward, two steps back, particularly with the current political leadership in both the U.S. and El Salvador, um, that, you know, when you know that there are people that are going to, um, that you can lean on for the long term, that that's helpful to me. Um, but there are certainly times I don't want to um, sugarcoat it. And my spouse, my kids could speak to this where, um, you know, I come back from an international experience and I'm just, uh, you know, it might be a day or two where I'm really kind of uh, frozen, you know, and having a hard time um, moving on and, and, and really shocked and in some ways appalled by the abundance um, and sort of the superficiality of the commercialization of this culture, um, having just been in a community like the one Adela referred to with Akumahersa, with people that don't, you know, don't have running water, don't have uh, electricity, have very little income, have um, seen their own family members murdered or disappeared. Um, both currently through violence, but certainly during the Civil War. 
Um, and you sort of hold all that, you know, particularly in my role as CEO, um, you know, I sort of listen <laughs> um, and you try to be supportive. And, you know, we don't, as Adela said, we don't really want our relationships to be transactional in the sense that we're just providing funding, but funding is obviously important. Um, but you listen a lot and you do what you can financially or in providing technical assistance or training. But sometimes I think the overwhelming or the hardest part is not, you know, you're never, there's never enough that you can do. There's never as many hours in the day or days in the year um, that you can try to provide all the kinds of support and um, solidarity that you'd like. Well, thank uh, you. Yeah. Um, one of the advantages of living here, as you know, is, uh, and I know this is important to Adele as well, being able to get out um, in the water, on a trail, um, on top of a mountain, and just centering myself and reconnecting myself with creation um, is a big part of what keeps me going. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, but before I ask you the same question, Adela, I want to... Um, let the listeners know what we are talking about. You are listening to WERU's show, Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I am Steve Wessler. We are talking today about the IPM Immersion Project, bringing people from the USA and from North America to engage with people who participate in human rights projects across the globe. Our guests are Joseph Stone, the executive director of IPM, who lives in Mount Desert Island, and Adela Zayas Hernandez, the regional director for Latin America and the Caribbean, and the international director of programs and partnerships. And she lives in El Salvador. So, Adela, um, uh, what's the hardest part for you? So I think uh, going along with uh, what Joe was mentioning, I think uh, it's very similar, you know, just looking to all the um, injustice uh, situations that our project partners and other people uh, in different countries live, uh, it gets you a feeling of impotence. You know, uh, you feel some, you feel that you have some resources and that you can, uh, you can do something, but it's not uh, enough. It's never going to be enough. Um, and as Joe was mentioning, I think after going in, in an immersion experience to Nicaragua, to the Dominican Republic, to whatever country you visit, I think you learn from the reality and the hard reality that they live in. And that you realize also that um, this reality is not only created uh, by a, a small context, you know, but it's a, a larger context. context. And it's not only a national situation, but also international. And, and you sometimes feel powerless, you know. Uh, but I really get my hopes up um, when I realize what our project partners are doing around the world. And, and they might seem as very uh, small spots around the globe, but if you connect them all, uh, then you realize how big this movement is. Because I think for me, social justice uh, it, it's that it's it's a movement, but like in in a little literal way, you know, it's people moving around to make things move, to make things change. But it, it is hard sometimes. Yeah, and and it's it's um, I think the way you described it, 
is um, you answered two questions in the, in the same time, which is what's hard about it, but what is what is gratifying about it as well. We may come back right. come back to that. Um, and and I I think at times people who do social justice work uh, and human rights don't have the space to talk about what's hard. Um, and uh, I uh, for for my myself and for so many people I know who have spent their their careers doing human rights work. Um, it's always a balance um, um, of what's hard and what keeps you keeps you going. Um, um, so hopefully this um, won't last that long. But what uh, what are you doing now with uh, when you people aren't going to fly to planes and um, it may not be safe to be in particular countries. So, so um, for either one of you, how uh, you mentioned a few things you were doing, but um, how are you keeping this this wonderful ship afloat? Um, well, I'll uh, you know I'll let Adela talk a little bit more about what she's been doing directly because. Uh, IPM has never been in a, you know, sort of a relief organization. We've been much more focused on long-term community development and social change, but we've had to adapt, obviously, in the current pandemic, and particularly the way um, that the pandemic is impacting our project partners in places like El Salvador and, and Kenya and India. Uh, one of the things we did right away, Steve, that I think was hugely important uh, this was our uh, would have been our 46th anniversary year or year in May, and we normally have a large gathering in St. Louis when we were founded, and we realized we weren't going to be able to do that, particularly because so many of the people that were around at the founding are you know elderly now, and so we started a virtual program, and it's turned into a virtual forum um, every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern and at two in English, and then at 2 p.m. Eastern in Spanish that provides an opportunity for our staff, our board, donors, friends, other folks to either be on Zoom or watch on Facebook Live, catch it later, uh, where we hear about the struggles and you know the reality of what people are going through. So for example, two weeks ago, we had an IPM board member who's with the uh, Franciscan Friars in Brazil, uh, who's one of my personal heroes, who does a lot of work with the landless, there I met years ago when I was working in Rome and um, you know he spoke about how what was really happening in Brazil and what we weren't being told uh, you know in the US or anywhere else and of course you know right after the forum it all sort of came out how bad the situation in Brazil was so having an opportunity to stay connected um, and I think some ways we've learned uh, we didn't use social media in this kind of way prior to the pandemic where now you know, whether it's Adela and I and our colleagues during the course of the week or these weekly forums, uh, it's really been a good way to support one another and, and move, sort of move the organization forward. Uh, the other thing that I mentioned briefly at the beginning of the call is the Immersion Experience Program 
we'll be rolling out a virtual equivalent of that starting next month. Um, and we're building it in a way that we imagine that even when folks travel again, that other folks will avail themselves of the virtual program, either because of age or finances or just fear of travel, that they might be able to spend the equivalent of 10 days in little segments uh, in Kenya or, like I said, around looking at an issue like gender equity or, or racial justice, environmental justice, um, from the perspective of different partners in seven or eight countries. So we're really excited about the possibility there. Obviously, it's uh, a difficult time for us, like most nonprofits financially, and people can go to their website, um, ipmconnect.org, our website, if they'd like to try to support that work. Um, but what I think has been the most edifying for me in my role um, as the CEO of this organization is to sort of watch and try to support uh, my colleagues like Adela uh, in working with our partners. And I'm sure she can speak to some really specific examples of what we've been doing. So Adela, just in, because we are um, moving toward the end of our, our time, um, uh, what's, what's changed that's difficult? What's changed perhaps even as Joe was described for things that are new and innovative? Right. So as Jill was mentioning, IPM has never been characterized by being a relief organization, but, um, you know, some of uh, the situations happening in El Salvador and in other parts of the Latin American region as well, uh, we have had a lot of needs. And I'm talking about not only material needs, but also uh, emotional needs. So in order to attend the material needs, we have uh, d done uh, different campaigns, uh, uh, fundraiser campaigns, um, and we have, uh, we have collected some funds uh, in order to support our project partners, um, especially in five categories, uh, in food, uh, in construction materials, uh, in medicine, um, uh, also uh, in clothes, um, and also uh, other, other materials like diapers or feminine towels, you know, which are really important uh, for our people here. Uh, so these are one of the things. And also to attend the emotional needs that these uh, different situations might be arising in our project partners, our staff, um, Victoria Jimenez uh, and Eneida Ramos, uh, which are uh, part of our regional office as well here in El Salvador, they have put together a workshop. Uh, uh, to attend that, that those psychological needs, you know, and they have created a program uh, in in um, like in a video format. So you, you need, I need about thirty seconds, and if you can finish. Okay, uh, um, a format uh, that all our, that is shared with all our project partners, and that they can listen and and uh, get these needs covered. Um. Thank you for the work that both of you are doing and all of your colleagues and all of the, your partners, but also for the people who have the courage to come from North America to, um, to learn things that are hard, difficult truths. Um, and I also have just tremendous admiration for doing this day after day, year after year. Um, it's, it's, it's not 
it's not easy. Um, someday maybe I will join. Be able to join. So uh, you've been listening to Change Agents on WERU, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. Today's guest has been Joseph Stone, the Executive Director of IPBM, who lives in Mount Desert Island, and Adela Sayas Hernandez, the Regional Director of Latin America and, and International Director of Programs and Partners, who lives in El Salvador. We have discussed their immersion program that brings people from the USA to talk with human rights advocates in many countries. And I think for many people listening uh, today, there we've entered into a world that perhaps some of us haven't been to. And I hope many of us listening will, uh, when things open up, will join you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Steve.